great pastor and theologian, A.W. Tozer, once made this statement. The thing that comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The thing that comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I couldn't agree more. When you think about it, whatever your view of God, it shapes how you think about life and how you think about yourself, how you think about other people, how you think about the world. And it doesn't matter if your view of God is what we might consider a a biblical view of God or your view of God is that God doesn't exist. Our view of God is a direct relation to how we think about ourselves and how we live our lives. It keeps coming back to that. And so William Temple, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, said that when your view of God is is corrupt and twisted and incorrect, then the more religion you get, the more dangerous you become to yourself and to others. Because it comes back to our view of God. How many times do we hear people say, I did this because God told me to. And we stand back and say, I can't imagine God would say that to you. It's your view of God. There is something about our understanding of God that is wrapped up in in the the season of epiphany that we're in now. The season is um, the weeks between Christmas and Lent. And and it, it focuses on how Jesus reveals God to people, particularly in the early stages of his ministry. It is is Jesus revealing not only God, not only the king, but the kingdom. What what is the kingdom like? What what is the king like? And so we come to this story in John chapter 2 of Jesus turning water into wine. The first story that we have of of Jesus in John's gospel doing a miracle. John says it's the first sign of the glory of Jesus. And he's in essence saying, here is the first glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like. And when this this idea of a sign is used in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, it is not just something about what's happening in the moment, but it's what's going to happen in the future. It's leading us to something. This is a sign from God about this and about that. And as Jesus reveals the nature of the kingdom, he's not just saying it's about this moment, though it is, but it's bigger than that. It's about the kingdom. It's about the eternal kingdom. When Jesus ushers in the kingdom in all of its fullness, this is what it will be like. And in this story, we get a glimpse of one facet of the diamond that is the kingdom. And what interests me is is when we... When the disciples see Jesus perform this miracle, their response is to believe in him. And that intrigues me. What is it about this miracle that causes the disciples to step back and say, wow, now I believe. 
Now, when they say they believe, I don't think that means that they now understand everything it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, to Jesus to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. As we read through the Gospels, we'll find that they don't have a clue yet, really, what, ta- what Jesus has come to do. They're still wrestling with that. But in this moment, as much as they know, they are declaring, we're in. Some of us said, he said, follow me. In chapter 1, he calls some disciples and they follow him. And now they're saying, we're not just following you, we're in with you. We believe. There's something about this story that grabs their hearts about what it means to be a part of the kingdom. So what is it that Jesus reveals? What glimpse do we get? What part, what facet of the diamond does this story show us? I think it's showing us that in the kingdom, Jesus is interested and involved in the commonness of our lives. In every moment of our lives. We have a tendency to think that God is involved in the times that we think of that are spiritual. You know, we come to church, we're reading our Bible, we're praying, we're talking with someone about Jesus. That's when God is present. That's what Jesus is interested in. I think one of the things that comes out of this story in terms of what it means to be a part of the kingdom and understand the mind and the heart of God is that he is interested and involved and and part of every single moment of our lives. Even the most common moments of our lives, like a wedding celebration. Weddings in first century Palestine are a little bit different than ours. When, uh, after the wedding, the bride and groom don't go off a hun- on a honeymoon, but they go to their house, and for a week or so, they host all of their guests. And they have this big week-long celebration. And it seems as though in this story, we've gotten somewhere in the middle of that week, and the wine has run out. And that means the party's coming to an end. I don't know how Mary gets involved in this story. I, I wonder... I don't know this by any means, but I wonder, it makes sense to me, that maybe one of her family members is the bride or the groom. Maybe even one of Jesus' siblings. And she's in charge of this, and they will lose face if something isn't done, and she comes to Jesus. I don't think she's coming to Jesus looking for a miracle. I don't think she has quite that conception of Jesus yet. But if scholars are correct that Joseph... Jesus' father is already dead. That means Jesus is the head of the home. And when you have a problem like this, you go to the head of the home. And that would be the oldest son. And so she goes to Jesus. Hey, look, we got a problem here. You're going to have to fix it. And Jesus says, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, if you've read this in some of the older translations, it feels kind of harsh. You know, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, woman, get away from me. I have nothing to do with you. That's not at all what he's saying. There's a respect in this term. It's, it's the same word. Jesus uses as he hangs on the cross and he looks down at his mother and looks down at John and he says, woman, here's your son. There is tenderness and relationship in this word. It's not as harsh as it comes out in our English translation. But Jesus says, my time has not come yet. I can't do this. Now, there are lots of theories of what Jesus means by that. If he means, I'm not supposed to do this. 
The father is saying to me, don't do that. My time has, your time hasn't come yet. Don't do that miracle. Then he disobeys the father because he does it. So I don't think that's what he's, he means. When he talks about his time coming, it typically is related to how much of himself, how much he's going to reveal of himself as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the one sent from God. And that's, I think that's why early on in his ministry when he performs miracles, he tells people, don't say too much about this because I don't want too much publicity yet. I think Jesus realizes that, that if people begin to understand and think that he is the Messiah, then they are going to want him to usher in the kingdom as they want it, not as he has come to bring it. And the people as a whole seem to, seem to want the kingdom, the, him to be the Messiah, so that they will crush the Romans, crush their enemies, and, and raise up Israel. And so it's a, it's a messiahship of power. And Jesus comes in humility and vulnerability. And the ultimate act of his coming is the cross. And people aren't going to get that for a while. It isn't until John chapter 12 that Jesus, in essence, says, my time has come, and he sets his face and moves toward Jerusalem. And we have that last week of his life. Part of me wonders, supposes, that maybe in the back of Jesus' mind, he's thinking, this doesn't seem like the right place to do the first miracle. It's just a wedding. Now, I'm not saying weddings aren't important. I can hear Jesus, I mean, God instituted marriage, and this is one of the things that comes out of this is God puts his stamp on marriage. But I just wonder if there isn't something in the back of Jesus' mind where he's thinking, shouldn't it at least be in the synagogue? Shouldn't at least we have the scriptures open? Shouldn't we do, be doing something more spiritual than a wedding celebration? I don't know. I am intrigued by this dialogue between Jesus and Mary because Jesus said, it's not my time yet. And Mary, and, and Mary says, oh, okay, I'm sorry, let's not do that. No, she says, there's a servant, just do what he tells you. It's almost Jesus like, what, did you not just hear me? What just happened here? You know, I mean, I had all these jokes about mothers that I was going to tell, but I'm afraid my mother might be listening, so I better not. But. <laughs> you know, I guess there is something that, in some sense, maybe you never stop being the child of your mother and you never stop being a mother of your children. You know, here's Jesus, 30 years old, and Mary's saying, look, I need you to do this. I'm not going to do this. Look, you do it. Your mother's talking to you right now. Do this. And he does it. God in the commonness of life. Like a wedding celebration. We have a tendency to want God to come in the extraordinary. In the big things of life. In those spiritual moments. And God, the kingdom is about God in every single moment. Every single circumstance. Every single situation. He is the God of every moment. And that means that when we pray, when we come to God, there is no burden, there is no situation, no circumstance too small, too trivial for God. I sometimes hear people say, well, you know, I kind of hate bothering God with that. He's got a lot of things he's dealing with. Man, 
You've got wars and terrorism and elections and we've got all these big things going on. God, to worry about my little problems. And we are back again to our twisted image of God and the kingdom. God is pleased when we come to him with every single thing in our lives. Because it declares that we believe God is who he says he is. When we, when we pray to God about the most minuscule things of our lives, we are giving glory to God and declaring he cares about us. And he cares about everything about us and everything about everyone else. There is nothing too small. It's God in the common. It's Brother Lawrence practicing the presence of God so that he senses God when he's peeling potatoes and setting the table for all of the other monks and taking out the garbage and cleaning out the kitchen and and tilling in the garden. God is in every single moment. That's the kingdom. It's not just about the extraordinary spiritual moments. It's about every moment. But I also think this story is telling us that the kingdom of God, not just that there is nothing too small for God, but also, and there's no, there's no moment too common for God, but also it's telling us that there is nothing too big for God. One of the things we see in the story is that Jesus is Lord of creation. He can take water and make wine out of it. This is exactly what John tells us in the beginning of his gospel. When he says, the word was with God and the word was God. He created, he existed in the beginning with God. He created everything through him. Nothing was created except through him. It's what Paul writes to the church in Colossae. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. Thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. This story tells us that that the kingdom is about Jesus who is Lord over all things, period. And he gives us a glimpse about the nature, the kind of kingdom that he is Lord over. If Jesus is the Lord that he declares himself to be, and the scriptures tell us that he is, then not only is there no problem too small, there's no problem too big. And what I find interesting about this story is that when Jesus does this miracle, he doesn't just give them enough wine. He gives them an abundance of wine. These pots, six pots, hold up to 30 gallons and It's almost as if Jesus says to them, you want wine? All right, I'll give you wine. How about 180 gallons worth of wine? More than they could ever use. More than they could need. 
There was something in that image about the kingdom being about abundance, not scarcity and stinginess. I think sometimes we have an image of God that we have to pry blessings out of God's hands. We don't. He loves to bless us abundantly beyond what we could dream or imagine. it's, It's what John writes again in chapter one when he talks about how Jesus comes and from his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ in abundance. It's what Paul writes to the Ephesians when he says, I want you to know, I pray that you will know how high and wide and long and deep is the love of God in Christ Jesus and that you will experience this love in a way that's beyond anything you could dream or imagine. This is the kingdom. I think it goes back to our view of God. If we view God as a God of scarcity and stinginess, we end up living lives of scarcity and stinginess. I I know some people who are, I think they have the gift of generosity. They are amazingly generous. And as I get to know them, they have a huge view of a generous God. That's why they're generous. See, the alternative is living in fear. We're afraid to be generous because what if God doesn't meet our needs? What if God doesn't, doesn't bless us as we need? So we've got to hang on to and hoard all of the things. And maybe that's why Jesus says, stop worrying about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. If your heavenly father takes care of the flowers of the field, he will take care of you. But it comes back to our view of the kingdom and our view of God. Is it abundance or scarcity? I think wrapped up in that too is is our our sense that the kingdom is really not so much about celebration as it is maybe severity and strictness because that's what fear leads to. You know, we I think the church has a hard time embracing the kingdom of God as celebration. Now, that doesn't mean that we ignore problems, that we don't lament difficulties and struggles. We do, but here's the truth is, we're pretty good at lament, and we're pretty good at being serious. What I think we wrestle with is being joyous. And yet, in many ways, that's one of the definitions of holiness, my, I don't know about you, but in my background, I had this tendency to think of holiness connected to strictness. It was all about what you cannot do. And the people who were said to be holy were severe kind of people in my experience. I don't think that reflects the Holy Spirit at all. Because when Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is, he doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is severity and strictness. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
And it doesn't mean that we're not serious about our faith or serious about God or serious about life. But maybe the issue is we take ourselves too seriously. And the kingdom is about celebration. This is a wedding. I, I know people who have said to me, man, I really wish that story was not in the Bible. They get nervous about the whole wine thing, which I understand. I mean, quite frankly, alcohol is a big problem in our culture. And, and I have a problem with alcohol. I have a problem with all the ways in which alcohol is a part of our culture and all the damage that it does to people and lives. And it's a problem. And I don't think this, this story is telling us that it doesn't matter what you do. I mean, they don't have a lot of choices in their culture. But what I do find interesting about this story is that I think people get nervous because what Jesus is really doing is as the party's winding down in the middle of the week, he says, let's kick the party back into gear again. And quite frankly, I think that bothers a lot of Christians. And it shouldn't. Because when John tells us in his revelation what the kingdom of heaven is like, One of the images he gives us is a wedding feast, a celebration. It's joy. And again, it doesn't mean that we ignore the problems of the world. It doesn't mean that we aren't serious about our faith and about life. It just means in the midst of the struggles and the burdens and the concerns and the aching that we have about our world that's gone awry, underneath all of that, there is a sense of hope because Jesus is Lord. And ultimately, his greatest act of as Lord that this, this miracle is leading us toward is his resurrection. And the promise that those who are in him will also be resurrected. And that's a reason to rejoice and to celebrate, not just then, but now. You got to change how we live now. Christians are not hopeless. We have the hope. And that ought to be reflected in how we live as citizens of the kingdom. God in the common, doing more than we could dream or imagine. And in this story, Jesus is trying to to shake our foundations a little bit, just as he was, I think, the people in the first century when he actually did this. It's not a coincidence that it's ceremonial washing pots that he chooses to put the water in. And the wine to come out of. These big pots of water, people would lay out, ladle out the water and they would pour it over the feet of travelers as they entered because of all the dust and things on them. But it was also about hand washing rituals. And they would pour the water down their arm, down to the end of their fingers, and the water would run off both hands. And you would do this before you ate and between all the courses of your meals. And you can understand that would be hygiene and just would feel better after eating things with your hands many times. But it's much more than that. It became symbolic of being in right relationship with God. That's why Jesus is harassed by the Pharisees, his disciples, don't, and Jesus himself, don't go through all the hand-washing rituals. Because they're in essence saying, we don't really think that that makes you right with God. It's not about the rituals. It's not about the legalism. It's not about confining us. It's about relationship. It's about God coming to us and and transforming us. It's about Jesus. 
So in a sense, Jesus is saying to them, let's use this symbol of a, of a, a corrupt view of God and let's do something new with this. Let's change it. And that's why he comes. I think the story is asking two things of us. I think one thing it's asking of us is that we live our lives looking for God in the commonness of life. I have discovered myself that when I look for God in life, I have a tendency to see him. And when I don't look for him, I have a tendency to miss him. It's being conscious, consciously looking for God, thinking about God, acknowledging God in the commonness of life every moment. And the second thing is in the moments of life, to trust, to believe like the disciples that Jesus is Lord of all. He can handle our problems. He can handle our struggles and our difficulties, those of our lives and those of the world. And we trust and we believe that he is who he says he is. And maybe those two things have a lot to do with what it means to be a part of the kingdom. So go back to what Tozer said. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So, what comes to our minds when we think about God? Father, we pray that you will give us eyes to see and that you will give us the grace to trust, to believe. And fill us with the fullness of you, your kingdom. Let me pray this through Jesus. Amen.